a study that was published that I often reference when I talk about this. Uh, they had moms drinking carrot juice during pregnancy. It was just a you know glass or two a week. It wasn't a lot. And what they found was that compared to moms that did not drink carrot juice during pregnancy, the babies of those moms were more readily accepting of eating carrots when it was time to start eating food at six months old. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 159. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. I have another amazing episode for you with Dr. Nicole Avina, who is a research neuroscientist and an expert in nutrition, diet, and addiction. Great episode. So many gems. Of course, she's brilliant, and I love so much of what she has to say. Before I tell you more about Dr. Avina, just a couple of things. If you haven't already snagged my bean freebie download with really great recipes, how to make beans in lots of different ways, and some really useful tips about cooking beans, go to dryami.com forward slash beans. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash beans. It's free. PDF, share it with your friends and family. I just want to get more people eating beans. Why? Because fiber is my favorite F word. And what is our biggest bang for our buck when it comes to fiber? Beans. Plus they have antioxidants, they have calcium, they have iron, they have zinc, they have magnesium. They're delicious, they're versatile. What is there not to love? about beans. So go get it, dryami.com forward slash beans. Remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult a doctor. Dr. Nicole Avina is a research neuroscientist and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction with a special focus on nutrition during early life and pregnancy. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from several groups, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Dr. Avina has written several books, including What to Eat When You're Pregnant, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, and What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant. She regularly appears as a science expert on the Dr. Oz Show, Good Day NY, and The Doctors, as well as many other news programs. Her work has been featured in Bloomberg Business Week, Time Magazine for Kids, The New York Times, Shape, Men's Health, Details, and many other periodicals. Dr. Avina is a member of the Penguin Random House Speakers Bureau. She has the number two most watched TED Ed Health Talk, How Sugar Affects Your Brain. She blogs for Psychology Today, and you can follow her on Twitter or Facebook and Instagram and at www.drnicoleavina.com. Another great episode. I wanted to follow up Dr. Ashley Gearhart's episode with a, another food addiction expert and ask them specifically more questions about how what we eat during pregnancy and childhood affects us in the future. So she has some really great things to say. Hopefully none of it is super surprising, but you're going to see another angle on it, another take, how these foods affect the development of babies, but also the neuroscience behind it. She has some really insightful things to say. I think it's a great conversation and you are going to love it. Thank you so much, my loyal listener, for coming back again and again, week after week. I appreciate you. 
I'm here for you. So thank you for listening to these episodes. Keep giving me feedback. Please leave me a review and share my podcast so that other people can also hear this information that might inspire them and empower them to take steps towards the well-being and the joy that they desire in life. All right, enough from me. Let's hear this amazing interview with Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Nicole Avina, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, this is so exciting. I can't wait to learn more about what you do. And I have been talking on my podcast recently about food addiction. I had Dr. Ashley Gearhart just on, and that was fabulous as well. But you have a whole different way of looking at things that I love too, because I'm a pediatrician. So let's just start out from your background. Why did you become interested in food addiction and the nutrition of pregnant mothers and children? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I got interested in food addiction when I was starting graduate school at Princeton. I was going to Princeton for my PhD in neuroscience. And the professor that I started doing research with was interested in appetite and how it had an impact on our brain and vice versa. And so we started talking about different ideas of things that I might do for my dissertation project. And we were thinking about this whole idea that so many people are struggling with overeating and obesity. What if it's something about the food in our modern food environment that is leading people to overeat these foods in a way that's maybe like an addiction, just like how somebody can become addicted to drugs or alcohol. Maybe people could become addicted to food. So we started thinking about this and essentially designed a bunch of experiments to do to test whether or not at first, our little lab rats could become addicted to food and sugar in particular. And then after that, we moved on to do some clinical research looking at the same types of questions. So that's really how I got started. And it kind of blossomed from there. I was initially interested in just whether or not food addiction was a thing, whether or not it was something we could actually study and measure. And then I kind of got interested in the origins of it. Once we had published a lot of experiments and studies showing that it was an actual thing and that we could demonstrate it in the laboratory, I got interested in seeing where it started. And so we started doing some experiments looking at early life nutrition and seeing that exposure to excess amounts of sugars, even in the womb, can have a long-term impact on health outcomes later in life. And so that's really where my interest in this came from a developmental standpoint to try to understand not only the origins of food and sugar addiction, but also follow it through the lifespan so we could better understand how to maybe treat it and how to prevent it if it's possible. Wow, I love it. So, you know, that scientific brain, the ability to think about these big picture topics. Were you surprised? I mean, because it seems like obviously there's a debate in, you know, science, the scientific community about food addiction. There's definitely people that believe it's real and some people are like, no, that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. But whenever you started delving into these questions and did the experiments with animal experiments, were they surprising to you or do you feel like it was just like, okay, we need, just need to confirm this hypothesis and move on to the next question? Well, initially it was a bit surprising because I, you know, was skeptical of it myself to talk about something like food in the same category as something like drugs and alcohol. Didn't necessarily seem, you know, like it was something that would automatically happen. And we didn't have any research studies that were already published to go off of. So we were really one of the first labs, if not the first lab, to study this empirically. There were some anecdotal reports that were out there where people, you know, had written books and talked about how they felt that one of the things that was so difficult about eating healthy was the fact that they were compelled to eat sugar. And so people would have these extreme cravings. And that was really the thing that often derailed people from eating a healthy diet. And so there were some anecdotal accounts that led us to believe that, you know, maybe there is something here, but it was surprising at first. But the more research we did and the more studies that were published, the more I found it to be really interesting and convincing. And then when we started to see other people replicating those studies and, you know, performing them and adding on to them throughout the world, then it became, I think, even more clear that there is something here when it comes to food addiction. 
Wow. It's so cool to be a pioneer in that field. And especially when you look a few years down the road and it seems like we just take it for granted to have that information. So thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. It's, you know, something that I think is so important because I think that we need to, in the medical community, be thinking outside the box of it. And at the time we, you know, we're treating obesity as a moral failing and Mm. treating it as if people just didn't have willpower and people just, you know, need to have the inertia to be able to do that. And that's not the case. It seems that there are, you know, plenty of studies now that suggest that it is a brain condition in the sense that, you know, people's brains are changing in a way that's making it difficult for them to stop overeating or to stop choosing these unhealthy foods. And so I think that that's important. It takes a lot of the onus off of the patient and puts it onto the food and the food companies and our food environment. Yeah. Well, I would take it a step further and say, it's not necessarily a brain condition. It's an environmental condition, right? Because if we, if it were thousands of years ago and there were no McDonald's and Twinkies, then we wouldn't be reacting the same way. So that takes it even a step further to say, it's not even about us. We're human. We're reacting the way a human would normally react in the presence of all of these hypercaloric, hyperpalatable foods that our brain goes, yes, Eat more of that. It will help you survive. (laughs) Exactly. And it's because we have that hunter-gatherer mentality. We evolved from people who used to have to, you know, walk around in the forest and look for a berry bush. And that was the only way you knew you were going to eat is when you saw that berry bush. And so what would you do? You'd eat all the berries because you couldn't store them in the refrigerator. You couldn't save them for later. They were going to, you know, spoil and go bad. And so we still have that hunter-gatherer part of our brain that, you know, when we see all these delicious foods and we have access to lots of them and big amounts of them, that we're kind of compelled to want to eat them. And so that's where, you know, the higher levels of our brain need to take over and, you know, put some restraint in place. But sometimes it can be very, very difficult to overcome those urges since they're so primal. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about pregnancy. We talk a lot about the individual and what we choose ourselves, but the research is just starting to emerge on how important it is to take it even more upstream. (laughs) So not just what your mother ate, but maybe even what your grandmother ate and epigenetics and all of this fascinating research that just blows your mind like, whoa, that can have an impact generations down the line. So tell me, why is the diet of a pregnant mom so important and impactful to the long-term health and eating habits of her children? Yeah, this is something that I've become really interested in over the past several years. Um, One of the things that we're learning from the research is, like you said, that there is this intergenerational effect of our environment and what it does to our children and how they develop. And one of the things that we know is that food plays a big role in that. What we eat, not only during pregnancy, but what we ate, you know, what our grandmothers ate during their pregnancies and back and back generations can have an impact on our health and on our food preferences and even on our immune system functioning. Mm-hmm. So there are a variety of different effects that nutrition can have on offspring. And now I think that this is something that is so important for us to talk about because a lot of people don't necessarily think about the importance of good nutrition during pregnancy. What they often think about, and I can speak to this from experience because I have two little kids of my own, is avoiding the bad stuff. Because when you go to the obstetrician, they'll say, don't eat too much mercury fish, don't eat hot dogs, don't eat deli meats, like don't eat these things that might make you sick because we know that pregnant women are often susceptible to foodborne illnesses and they're also susceptible to things that have high mercury in them. We don't wanna be passing that on to a baby. But there's really very little education for pregnant women about what foods are really nutritious during pregnancy, what you should be eating to support not only your health, but also the health of a growing baby. And so I've become really interested in this over the years and um, actually written a book on this called What to Eat When You're Pregnant. And this book came out a couple of years ago and it's really a healthy eating guide for new moms or moms-to-be that are really just interested in understanding the science behind nutrition and how it can have an impact 
again, not only on the development of your baby, but also down the road, how it might have an impact on their food preferences or on their cognitive health or their immune system. And so thinking about what we're eating during pregnancy and even you know beyond, I think is so important and something that we really need to be having more of a discussion about. Yeah. And as a pediatrician, one of the things I talk about a lot is that babies develop the ability to taste in the womb. That some of those flavors might come through the amniotic fluid. So everything that we can do to start exposing our babies as early as possible to some of those flavors of those super health promoting foods that have high antioxidants like leafy greens, mm -hmm. that is an advantage. What advice would you have? Because I think this comes up a lot with moms that have a lot of morning sickness and they can't even imagine eating anything green or raw, <laughs> you yes. know, and I know that for most of the time it doesn't last the entire pregnancy, but I feel like that's one of the main obstacles that come up, even for moms that are like, want to be deliberate. And then they right. just feel so horrible because they just cannot eat that. Yeah. It's something that people struggle with and it's awful. I experienced some of that myself and it is something that can, you know, be very, very difficult because like you say, you're trying to do the best for your health and your baby's health. But if you're just physically going to feel ill, then it's just not possible. So a couple things I would suggest. One is something that can really help with morning sickness is to eat something light before you even get out of bed. And so even if you keep you know, a sleeve of saltine crackers and, you know, some orange juice next to your bed, that can really help. And if you have something to eat before you even get up, it can have an impact on, you know, how you feel. Also, I suggest that if you're having a hard time getting, you know, spinach or these leafy greens down through a salad or through, you know, having them cooked as like a side at your meal, Try getting a shake or try blending them and making a smoothie and maybe, you know, adding in some fruits and some other things to mask the taste if the taste just is a little bit off-putting to you. And that's a really quick and easy way to get, you know, some of those greens into your diet and get some of those other healthy things into your diet if you're not really feeling it. You can drink things a little bit more easily than you can if you have to sit there and, you know, chew them up. So those are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that, again, you know, morning sickness... Typically, it's over by the, you know, almost the end of the first trimester for most women, but there can be weeks where it can be pretty rough. So you just have to hang in there and definitely talk to your doctor if it feels like it's not getting any better or if it's getting to the point where you can't keep any food down because then you want to make sure that, you know, you're um, having a consultation to make sure that you're getting enough nutrients so that you don't faint or hurt yourself. Yes. And I think the smoothie advice is really good as, you know, you're pregnant belly gets bigger because your stomach capacity goes down. And so having those meals where you can digest a little bit faster or having smaller volumes more frequently towards the end of the pregnancy can help a lot of women too, especially if they're having a lot of heartburn and just discomfort <laughs> in their stomach. So that's Absolutely. Great. Yeah. If there's not a lot of room in there, you want to make sure you're getting the most out of, you know, the real estate that you do have available. Yeah. So try to get, you know, as much nutrition into the foods as possible. Yeah. Biggest bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. Well, what other things can we do to influence the taste preferences of our kids? Well, at different stages, there's a variety of things that can be done. Like you mentioned about pregnancy, that's really, you know, a critical window where if you're eating healthy foods, you can pass on some of the essence of those foods to your baby. And there's been some really interesting studies that have been done that have looked at, you know, things like carrot juice, for example, as just one thing. A study that was published that I often reference when I talk about this, uh, they had moms drinking carrot juice during pregnancy. It was just a you know glass or two a week. It wasn't a lot. And what they found was that compared to moms that did not drink carrot juice during pregnancy, the babies of those moms were more readily accepting of eating carrots when it was time to start eating food at six months old. So just by having that, you know, memory or that hint of having that taste before, it can really have an impact. Now, the reason this happens is because babies are naturally neophobic. Neophobic means they're afraid of new things. And that's a good thing. We want them to be afraid of new things because they have not explored the world. And so they're neophobic when it comes to strangers. That's why a lot of babies, you know, don't want to be near anybody but mommy or daddy. 
but they're also neophobic when it comes to food. So this is why it can be very difficult when you first start feeding a baby to get them to like, you know, cruciferous vegetables or to like things that are a little bit different because the things that they are accustomed to are things that taste sweet. And so that's one of the reasons why it's very important. And I suggest when people start off feeding a baby that they start off with the vegetables. Don't necessarily lead with the fruit because the fruit tastes sweet. And so your baby is going to naturally just prefer something that tastes sweet. And so it's a really good idea to be persistent with the vegetables, offer a variety of different vegetables. And I would treat the fruit as a dessert. And so if you do want to give your baby fruit, wait until the very end of the meal after they've had some, you know, vegetables and then go ahead and uh, give them some fruit if they like it. When it comes to older kids, it can be a little more challenging and have to get a little bit more creative. I think that, you know, the preschool age kid range is one that you can really have an influence on. You can do some things that um, are just kind of sneaky, I guess, from a parental standpoint, like, you know, putting pureed vegetables into tomato sauce or adding a little bit of pureed butternut squash to macaroni and cheese. I mean, there's ways in which you can sneak vegetables into foods that your kids naturally like or already are eating and already like. And this could be a way to then encourage them to, again, kind of like with the pregnancy where they can have the essence of the flavor, when they come in contact with those flavors, they're not going to be as put off by it or as afraid of it. So those are some things that I suggest. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really challenging to parents is that they often feel like, you know, they have a picky eater and it's so difficult to get the child to have a variety of foods. And my advice in those situations is that it's natural for kids to be picky eaters. It's just part of the way we evolved. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you just need to, depending on where your child is, come up with some solutions so that you can make sure that they are getting all the nutrients that they need, even if they have kind of a shorter list of foods that they will like to eat. Yeah. Oh, that's such great advice. And I recommend the same thing in my practice, but it's funny. I want to tell you that when I first started practicing as a pediatrician, the idea was that it doesn't matter what you start with. So we're like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Start with whatever you want. And, you know, we mm -hmm. usually said, rice cereal because it's the most hypoallergenic and then move to the fruits and it's so fun. And then I started doing the research for my book and I realized, oh, it actually does matter. <laughs> it does matter. And now that I started changing what I, how I counsel my parents, I'm creating veggie lovers. It is amazing. So I recommend for my families to start with the green leafy vegetables first when they start mm -hmm. feeding and to kind of treat it like baby flavor boot camp. So new flavors as often as possible, those green leafies, the bitter bitter vegetables before you move into the foods that are easier to eat, you know? And I yeah. think it really does make a difference because these children seem to be more receptive, more open to these flavors that sustain longer. But I agree with you because the studies also do show that 85% of parents of children between ages one and five describe their children as picky. So it's mm -hmm. also just part of normal development for children right. to be selective, to just kind of poke around and be like, I don't want that. You know, it's normal. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to us to continue to expose. So tell me a little bit more about flavor repetition and why that's so important when feeding babies. Yeah, that's something that a lot of parents just aren't aware of. The fact that you do need to be repetitive and keep trying the same flavors over and over again. And the studies show that it takes sometimes between eight to 10 exposures before a baby will become accepting of a new flavor. Now, what does this mean? So it certainly doesn't mean you're gonna you know, force your baby to eat things that they don't like, but we have to keep in mind, a lot of times when you're feeding a new baby, six months old, they're gonna make facial reactions to a taste that gets put in their mouth. And their facial reactions don't always correspond with what they're thinking. They have kind of a more limited facial response than we do as adults. So babies might make a face that looks like disgust, like where they're like, oh, that, that doesn't taste right. But they might not actually be thinking that. They might be thinking, this tastes different. I've never had this before. This is weird. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't like it if they're making a face as if they you know, don't like it. That's just something to keep in mind. And so I suggest that parents, you know, if you're trying out, like, like you said, like a leafy green and the baby doesn't seem to like it for lunch, then, you know, put a little bit of taste on their mouth if they 
Don't like it? Okay, well, let's try again at dinner. But keep trying. Don't just give up on the food because it can take several exposures before your baby is more accepting of it. And that's good because that it means that their, you know, primitive behavior of being neophobic is working, right? That they're not supposed to just see a food and just gobble it up. They're supposed to be a little bit wary and a little bit hesitant of new flavors. And so just stick with it. And you might find that, you know, your baby's going to become like you have in your practice a veggie lover very quickly. Yeah. And that's especially true of bitter flavors because bitter flavors in nature often represent poison. So it's natural for us at the beginning when we're learning to accept bitter flavors to be like, oh, what the, what is that? And so I think often parents see that face and they're like, oh, they hate that. And they never give it to them again. And so I think it's important to reassure parents, oh, that's okay. They're going to make all kinds of things. They're going to push things out. It doesn't mean you never give that to the child again. You have to continue to expose consistency, repetition. That is the key for these kids to start accepting these flavors later on. Absolutely. And one of the things that I find to be so challenging is the fact that, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, the fact that so many of the baby foods that are out there that are commercially available in stores are blends of vegetables with fruit. Mm -hmm. Now, I, you know, find this to be a bit of a challenge because I think it sends the message to parents that you can, you know, kind of sneak the vegetables in, which is, which is great. But if you never expose your child to just straight up vegetables and allow them to have these tastes and you mask everything with fruit all the time, then it's going to pose a problem later on because you're going to find that when your child's a bit older or they're beyond the baby food puree stages, that if they've never tasted what broccoli tastes like alone, or they've never, you know, tasted what some of these other foods like spinach, for example, tastes like on its own, then they're going to be hesitant to eat it. And so I think that we have this problem with, you know, this masking of these flavors with fruits that I really find to be challenging. I agree. And so the population I serve right now, a lot of the parents make their own baby foods. Mm. And so there is a privilege there with the the time and the ability to do this because it's true. I feel like the foods that you find out in the store have pear and apple and banana and all of them. And it's just like you were saying before, the reason is because this is a food company that wants to sell their products and they know that the baby's probably going to be more willing to accept it and give that pleasant face when they eat that rather than just like a thing of spinach, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to sell, they're trying to sell their product and uh, please the baby. (laughs) So I think that's the problem there. That's the conundrum, right? Um, So I, I agree. I think that that can be an issue. And that's why I tell my parents, just start with single ingredient, these green leafy vegetables at the beginning, don't be tempted. Cause it, the thing with feeding babies too, is you just want it to be like this fun experience and you want the baby Mm -hmm. to just really seem like they're enjoying it, which is great. But I think parents shy away from, like you said, these grimaces and different faces because they want to rush to the, let's just make it fun all the time sort of stage, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I talk about, I have a follow-up book that I wrote to what to eat when you want to get pregnant. It's called what to feed your baby and toddler. And this book, I talk about things that we're talking about now, but I also include recipes because I think it is fun to make your own baby food. And if you have the time and you know you, you want to do it, 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 there's really a lot of opportunities there to combine different ingredients in a way that can you know help to train the baby's palate so that they will be more accepting of different types of foods later in life. Yes, yes. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. 
Well, one of the things I've become really interested in is our genetic blueprint and mm -hmm. how that influences our behaviors around food. So can you tell me from your research or your knowledge in this field, how much of our food seeking, seeking and food preference behaviors are determined by our genetics? Well, that's an interesting question. I think we're starting to learn more and more about this as the field of genetics just explodes. We're seeing that, you know, so much information can now be learned from genetic testing. And I think that we're going to see that to continue as time goes on and the technology just gets even better. I think that we're all born with some innate preferences, some that are just genetically put upon us just because we're humans, and then some that are genetically brought about just due to our history of epigenetics with, through our families. But I think that we might have these genetic predispositions to like certain foods, and some of these can be culturally driven, but I think that what we are finding the challenge to be in our modern food environment is that we might have this predisposition genetically, but the environment can have an impact that can be stronger than that genetic predisposition. So even if you, you know, have a genetic predisposition to like vegetables or to be, you know, maybe you're from a long line of vegetarians, let's say, that can be overridden in many cases by our modern food environment, by this constant advertisement of junk food and by this constant advertisement of fast food and things like that. So I think that this idea of having a genetic imprint can be very valuable, but I think that we have to keep in mind that we're kind of at odds with our environment in terms of you know how that's gonna play out. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I just think it's fascinating because I have two children, one by birth, one by adoption, and mm -hmm. they are very different in their food seeking behaviors. And I think a lot of times we just assume that foodies are made, you know, mm -hmm. foodies are made because everybody in the whole family is a foodie. So then you just become a foodie. But I do feel that there is a genetic component to that because my son was born loving food just as much as I was, the one that I had mm -hmm. by birth. And the other one who we adopted early, he loves food, but he's the kind that if, you know, he'd rather play a video game than get up and eat. Like I would mm -hmm. much rather eat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's just, it's super fascinating to see the differences there in the genetic package. And even if he's in this environment where all of us around him are like food people and we want to eat mm -hmm. all the time, he's gotten a little bit of it, but he's not all the way to our side. So yeah. it's just, it's just super fascinating to me to be able to see those differences. And I think it can also help some people too, because, you know, you, you have that friend, you know, the friend that can just take a bite of cake and be like, I'm full, you know, mm -hmm. I'm good. And they move on. Mm -hmm. You think, what's wrong with me? How come I eat the whole cake when I'm, when I'm presented with the cake, you know? And it, I think some of those things are also could be partially due to genetic differences in how we approach food and what food means to us. So it's just Absolutely. Yeah. Just like, I mean, if you think about it, like anything else, like music, there are some people who are just very talented musicians that have a family of talented musicians. It's just in their blood, in their genes. And I think that you're right about food and the way we approach food and the way, you know, we, we think about food and treat food. It could be through the same mechanism. I think that, you know, we have this genetic piece that goes with it. Um, the problem, though, unlike things like, you know, musical talent, is that we have this environment that's kind of pushing us away from eating healthy. Yes. And so if we have that natural tendency to, you know, like certain types of foods that are on the healthy spectrum, that's going to make it more challenging. My fear moving forward is that we're going to have generations now being born that have this genetic predisposition to liking junk food and yeah. to liking fast food. And they're going to come out of the womb <laughs> craving that. And that's going to make it really challenging because then not only will we be fighting, you know, we'll be having, you know, genetics and the environment kind of meeting each other. And we're going to have a really hard time getting the proper nutrition into young people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's all very important to think about. Let's talk about moderation a bit because we're mm -hmm. talking about the environment and it bombarded. We're bombarded by fast food restaurants, processed foods, hyper-processed foods, advertisements from everywhere. Everywhere you look, food mm -hmm. is being advertised. 
So when it comes to feeding our children, when it comes to them being exposed to the world, is there such a thing as moderation? And if so, how do we practice this with kids? Yeah, I love this question because I feel like moderation is one of those terms that no one actually has a good definition for because right. moderation to you and moderation to me can be two completely different things. It is, you know, very, very, very difficult to define. And I think that it's also difficult to teach our children. Like when we tell people, oh, you know, you can have that, but in moderation, well, what does that mean? Like once a week, once a month, can I have as much as I want if I only have it one time, you know, and then don't have it again for another couple of days. And so I know with my kids, one of the things that, you know, we've really tried to instill and to teach them is for them to be able to police themselves in terms of how much is too much. And, you know, I think this is an important skill to teach your children. A lot of times parents are very, very concerned about making sure that their children get a proper diet, that they, you know, don't let their children have any sweets and they, you know, completely cut out these things from their diet. And I, I see the idea behind that, but what happens then when your little one goes off to school and it's, you know, Susie's birthday and it's time for everybody to have cupcakes? Well, now your child hasn't learned that, you know, okay, you can have this once in a while. I think it's a better skill to teach your kids that they can have sweets, but if they had, let's say, you know, a cupcake for a kid's birthday at school, that that means that they don't have to have dessert after dinner, you know? So teaching them that you can have these things, but you need to be able to tell yourself when you've had enough or when to put the brakes on is a really important skill and something that parents need to work with their kids to try to get them to understand. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like we have to be able to trust our children to practice these skills because the world around us is not changing anytime soon. No. So if we are always micromanaging for them or completely mm -hmm. restricting it all the time, you know, we know what that leads to. It leads to them going into public and being like, ah, you know, I want it all, you know, and not having that ability to modulate their intake. So it's difficult though, because I do see like we, you know, the previous question that there are differences in how some children approach these foods, but we just have to be very cautious in how we talk about these foods and how we present these foods to them to have them tune back into their bodies and feel for themselves what is the right amount. But I think it's interesting on this concept of moderation because I just read in, I don't know if you've read Dr. Michael, Bre Dr. Michael Greger's book, How Not to Diet. It's, yes. it's really big, but you know, he talks about in there moderation that the definition to moderation is about the same or a little bit more than what you already have of that food, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so right. if, if you're usually eating two cookies a day, then moderation is two to three cookies a day. That's my definition, you know, because right, that's how right. much I eat. <laughs> yes. So yes. it is, it's different for every person. It really is. Um, then speaking on that, because we're talking about moderation and restriction, tell me what you know of research that's been conducted on the effect of food restriction or food scarcity on the development of addictive eating behaviors or overeating. Do we have any insight either from animal models or human studies on this? Well, it's interesting. We actually have been doing a fair amount of research looking at the role that food restriction can play on overeating and on on food addiction in general. And I think that there is, you know, a significant amount of evidence that suggests that when people restrict their food, just like, you know, let's just say it's January 1st and everybody decides, okay, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to eat healthy. People end up restricting their food. And then what ends up happening is that they end up binging on food when it becomes available or they end up overeating. And we've seen this in our animal models that we've developed to study food addiction. And we see this sort of restriction binge type of background emerging. And we think that that is what is associated with this addictive overeating that can develop. And so mm. the idea that, you know, you restrict what you're eating, it seems that it can actually do more harm than good. Because if you're restricting yourself to the point where you're setting your up yourself up to then overeat, then the restriction obviously isn't going to work. And so the mechanism behind this is that when people restrict their food or, you know, don't eat enough or, you know, have a fasting period, 
then when they do refeed, it can release dopamine, which is a neurochemical yes. in the brain, but it releases it in an exaggerated manner. So if, you know, let's just say I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then my family decided we're going to have ice cream and I had a little bit of ice cream for dessert, that ice cream is going to release dopamine to my brain. But let's just say you decided to not have breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and you're just going to have ice cream anyway. Well, that ice cream is going to release a lot more dopamine in your brain because of the background of, you know, having this food restriction period before it. And so that is what we think plays a role in contributing to this addictive like overeating because dopamine is one of the neurochemicals that is associated with addiction. And so I think that making sure that we're not restricting too much and then refeeding is really key to making sure that we don't develop these addictive like eating patterns. Wow, that makes so much sense. I have never heard anybody explain it that way. But I have a history of this in the past. Yo-yo dieting, mm. type A personality, so I can restrict like a pro, okay? <laughs> but I, that totally makes sense. During that time, whenever you do allow yourself to have that thing that you're restricting, and it's like an explosion to your brain, your body is like, yes. But then that's gonna create that memory of that food's really good, you want yes. more of it. And so then that leads to that overconsumption, that binge where you keep chasing that dopamine rush that you're never gonna be able to get like that first time. Wow, yes. that makes so much sense. So then in that case, if we want to decrease the formation of these uh, addictive eating behaviors, but also try to eat in a way that's health promoting, I feel like we're kind of stuck in this food environment. What's your advice for, for people like that, that they want to eat healthy and, you know, not overeat on these foods and, but also not restrict to the point where they might be triggering mm -hmm. addictive behaviors. Yeah. I think that the key really comes down to finding your niche in terms of what type of eating pattern works for you. I have been doing research on nutrition for years now, and I really don't think that the three meals a day, two snacks structure is meant for everybody. I think that it's important that we allow our bodies to feel hungry sometimes. And then when we feel hungry, we eat. And I think that we are very confused as a society on what to eat, when to eat, and how to eat. And there's so many different diet programs out there now, like this, you know, intermittent fasting, keto, you know, you name it. It changes every, you know, year or so about what the latest and greatest is. It's going to help you to be healthy and lose weight and stay a healthy weight. And I think that, you know, the average person out there just really needs to listen to their body and try to fuel it with the best foods. And yeah, give in to, if you have a craving for carbohydrates, go for it, have some. But you have to be able to have the self-awareness to see what you're actually doing and to know that if you know, you're gonna have to put limits on how much of these things you wanna eat if you wanna be able to enjoy them and still be having a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the restaurant industry has made this very challenging because Portion sizes have gone up so dramatically. If you look at the sizes of portions of things from the 1950s compared to what you see today, if you go out to a restaurant, I mean, it's just amazing. It's gone up so much that what we see is that not only the sizes of the beverages have gone up, the sizes of even a hamburger has gone up or, you know, side dishes have also gone up as well. Even the sizes of the dinner plates have increased. Mm -hmm. And so it's a challenge because psychologically, whatever's put in front of you, you think is your portion. And it's really at the point now where I know when I go out to restaurants, I'll order an appetizer for dinner and, or my husband and I will split an entree because we know it's just going to be way too much food. And I think that, um, you know, being aware of that is something that is important because if you say, oh, I feel like having a little something to eat as an appetizer, and then also an entree, just keep in mind that the portions that are going to be put in front of you are probably going to be two days worth of food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And psychologically, we adapt to that. We feel like mm -hmm. that's the appropriate amount of food, which I think that also affects how we feed our kids because oh, yes. we're overeating. And then when our kids are following their natural intuition and they're full, we're like, you definitely didn't eat enough. 
because we're yes. comparing it to this massive amount of food that we usually eat. So Actually, yeah, it skews everything, right? Absolutely. I talk about this a lot, the food norms, the idea that, you know, it's become now normalized to have these, you know, giant plates of food or go to these restaurants where you're getting, you know, a lot of food and you don't need all that. It's the calorie content and the nutritional value is not there in terms of, you know, what you actually need. It's well beyond in terms of calories and it's probably void of the nutrients unless you're ordering a giant salad or a big plate of vegetables. Yeah. So it's something that, you know, we have to keep in the back of our minds when we're going through our day and, you know, kind of planning out what we're going to eat. Yeah. I, I just wish so much that we could change the environment around us, you know, to start yeah. living this blue zones lifestyle, more vegetables and fruits, you know, having more connection rather than just spending all our time eating, <laughs> you know, it's just, just so that the environmental influence is so strong. But speaking of environment, I'd love to know your take on diet culture because, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about restriction and I feel for many people, the restriction stems from wanting to change the size of their bodies. We have right. this pressure from culture that we all should be smaller, yet we're all larger given right. our environment. And so it's really, really tough. We want to go on these crash diets. There's so many available. So is it possible to control for the effect of diet culture on our eating behaviors, uh, on these addictive eating behaviors? And, and what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's such an important topic. And I feel like there's certainly pressure for men, but I think that the pressure is greater for women. Yes. And I think that when... First of all, when I started doing this research, I was interested in obesity and trying to better understand, you know, how we could maybe better understand obesity, how we could reduce it so that people can live healthier lives. Because we know that when people are obese, they're at greater risk for developing health related complications. Now, I think that the message that we need to be sending to our youth and to ourselves is that this is all about health. It's not about how much you weigh. It's about how healthy you are. Some people are just genetically going to be larger than other people. That's just something that is largely out of their control. Doesn't mean that they're not as healthy. If they're putting into their body the right types of foods, if they're exercising, if they're reducing their stress, if they're having meaningful relationships, they're living a healthy life. And so I think that we really need to remove the number on the scale from the equation and approach this from the standpoint of this is about health. And when I talk to my children, when I you know talk to groups of children about this, it's about eating healthy foods so that you can have a healthy body and take care of your body. It's not about you know squeezing into a bikini or looking a certain way. That is something that really is not a part of the conversation, in my opinion. Yes, thank you so much for saying that. I have been trying to spread this message as well as a healthcare provider because I was like you, you know, I started at the beginning of my career. Okay, we need to stamp out obesity, 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 and then really focused on this end goal of the size of the body. Mm -hmm. And now the way that I understand it, I think in general, what we're seeing in society is that the size of our body is correlated to our habits and behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if instead we focus more on the habits and behaviors, how can we eat more vegetables? How can we sleep better? How can we decrease our stress? How can we just move our bodies more in a joyful way? Then yes, there might be a correlate of decreasing body size, but probably there's going to be a stronger correlate of improving or increasing healthfulness. Right. And so I really agree with you that that should be our end goal should be more the habits and behaviors rather than the size of our bodies. So because I think what happens is when we are focused on the size of our bodies, then we're just going to go to the easiest quick fix to change that, which mm -hmm. oftentimes leads to consequences that we don't want, right, which is right. the binge eating and the regaining of the weight or even increasing weight more than before. It comes Absolutely. to this, you know, weight fluctuations and it's just psychologically traumatizing for a lot of people too. Yeah. And just because, you know, look, anybody could go on a diet and lose weight. If you said, you know, this, you have to do this. 
And I think that if it comes down to it, if you tell somebody that they needed to go on a diet and lose 10 pounds, they could do it. But does it mean that they're still going to be healthy? Does it mean that they're getting enough nutrition? I've seen plenty of people who maybe, you know, look like they're a healthier weight than other people. But if you take a look at their diet and their lifestyle, they are certainly not healthy in any way, shape or form. And so I think it's important that we don't just assume that just because someone is lean and smaller that they're healthier. That might not be the case. They could be doing things to their body that are more harmful than someone who might be over, overweight or obese. So I think that we need to just keep in mind that it's about, like you said, the habits and what you're putting into your body and how you're treating your body as opposed to, you know, the number of pounds that someone weighs. Yes. Amen. And now for a very important message. Hey, mama. If you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Well, let's talk a little bit about mindfulness, mindful eating skills. And then mm -hmm. I also would love to have your take on intuitive eating because I know that the intuitive eating community clashes a little bit with the, the yes. idea of food addiction. Um, and I, I certainly have been there when I saw things a little bit differently than I do now. So in your opinion, is it important to talk about mindfulness, mindful eating skills, maybe even the principles of intuitive eating, and also to have this awareness of diet culture in order to raise kids that are able to make better choices for their overall health? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a scientist, so I'm an advocate for all the evidence and all the information to be always put forward so that people can make informed decisions about what they think and evaluate it. And I think that, you know, it's important that we talk about mindfulness to be mindful of the foods that we're consuming and, you know, to understand how we feel around certain foods and, you know, to value the fact that when we eat healthy foods, that it makes us feel good. And I think that that's a skill we can teach our children. I think that for me, the part of intuitive eating that I find kind of clashes with this concept of food addiction is that no foods are off the table, meaning that, you know, every food out there is an acceptable food to eat and something that, you know, we shouldn't be saying that there are foods that you should or shouldn't eat. That's kind of where the disagreement comes in. Because I would argue that many of the foods that are manufactured in, you know, food company laboratories aren't actually food. They're concoctions of chemicals and ingredients that are put together to taste a certain way, to smell a certain way, to look a certain way. And they are 
yeah, maybe they contain calories, so they're technically a food. But if you ask me, many of these processed foods don't belong in the same category as carrots or avocados. And I think that telling somebody that, you know what, if you can't just stop at one Oreo cookie and you feel that that's going to trigger you to eat the whole sleeve of them, then don't eat them. You don't need them. What benefit do they give you? And so that's my perception of it. I think that it's okay to tell people that if a food is going to trigger you to overeat, then just avoid it. Just like we tell people, you know what, if you have a problem with alcohol, maybe you should just stay away from alcohol. Maybe if you can't, you know, just have one glass of wine, then don't have any wine, have something else. You can still go to the party, just like you could still go out to the restaurant and be with friends, but maybe there are certain foods that are triggers for you that you want to avoid. Now, I think that we have to be mindful of the fact that if somebody's, you know, got 50 foods on their trigger list, then that might be a little too much because we don't want people to be excluding foods that are going to be nutritious. But I do think that many of these processed foods that are out there, in my opinion, they're actually not food. And I would like to see that that would be a change societally that we have, that a lot of these food companies, you know, can't just go around calling many of these foods food. I was in the grocery store the other day and I needed to grab some cereal. And I happened to go past that section of the cereal aisle where it's like the junk food cereal. And I was shocked that there's some, I don't even want to talk about it because I hate to feel like I'm promoting it, but it was basically like chocolate inside the cereal that would like burst open when you eat it. And I'm like thinking to my, and it's something obviously very heavily marketed towards kids. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe that this is a real thing, that they're allowed to put this in the cereal aisle next to, you know, granola or oat bran or something that, you know, is much healthier and call it the same thing. So people who, you know, don't maybe necessarily have a nutrition background or just don't know about the importance of feeding your child, you know, nutritious, wholesome foods might say, oh, yeah, I just got to give them cereal and grab this thing. So. I would like to see there be more regulation in terms of, you know, how we label these things as food, because I think it's misleading and I think it's harming us and it's really the crux of the problem. Yeah. I mean, cause just think about it. Probably most people, especially if they don't know much about nutrition might just assume that, well, it's, it says children's cereal. It says part of a balanced diet. It can't right. be that bad, right? I mean, they're, they're not going to put something here oh, yeah. that's going to harm my child. Exactly. And so you have this level of trust. Yeah. And, you know, whenever you were talking about it, these foods not really being food, what came to mind is what we should call them as neurochemical manipulators because exactly. that's what they do, right? They're trying to get to that bliss point where your brain goes, yay, and you just want more and more and more, which we know that our children are really good at that too, of saying, mommy, buy this one, mommy, buy this one, this is the one I want. And so the companies know that if they get the kids hooked, then yes. probably the parents are going to go ahead and purchase that for them. Yeah. And if you go in the grocery store, I mean, there's a whole science behind the real estate in the grocery yes. store, where the foods are placed are, you know, the companies pay a premium to have the you know, sugary cereals that they're making be at eye level with your child. So if you think about it, you know, the ones that nobody ever wants to eat are usually way up eye on the shelf because it's true. those are the ones that are healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle and, Sam's, it's at the yes. very top. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, th this isn't done on accident. There's a purpose behind these placements and they happen to be at eye level for your child or for you so that, you know, you're more able to see them. And those are the ones that you're going to go towards. So just keep that in mind that even when you go grocery shopping, there's some level of manipulation happening that you need to be aware of so that you don't fall victim to it. Yeah. It's almost like we all need to have a, a healthy bit of skepticism and maybe some conspiracy theories in our brain yes. so that we can start feeling a little bit like we are being manipulated so that we can understand what's going on before we make choices for our foods. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It is. Well, Dr. Avina, what do you wish more people knew? Well, oh gosh, a lot, but I, I guess I wish more people knew that we have so much control over what we eat. Now, I know a lot of people feel that, you know, 
you go to the grocery store, you kind of buy the things you like, and it's sort of just, you know, you just throw stuff in the cart, make dinner. But I really wish people knew that we have so much more control over our health than we think we do. And a lot of it boils down to what we're eating. So many of the diseases that we get later in life could be prevented if people ate healthier when they were younger and started off with these healthy habits when they were younger. I think that, you know, so many of the conditions that we're facing now as a society where we have, you know, people having to take chronic medications, people, um, you know, developing heart disease, people developing diabetes later in life or even earlier in life, a lot of that could be reduced just simply by eating healthier. Mm -hmm. And so I know that we don't often think about this, you know, when you're looking at your five-year-old, you don't think, oh, I, I don't want them to have heart disease when they're 60, but you need to think that way because that's really the key to having your child have a long life and to avoid some of these conditions that are, un are avoidable by teaching them the skills to eat healthy, by teaching them about good nutrition and why it's important for their health and why they need to take care of their bodies and giving them those habits while they're young so that they can carry them through adulthood so that we can hopefully reduce some of the occurrences of these conditions. Yeah, it's one of the best gifts we can give our children. You know, we're always thinking about what can we buy our kids for Christmas? What can we buy them for their birthdays? But these habits and behaviors of a healthy lifestyle, that is the best long lasting gift we can give them. And it's just one step at a time, one step at a time. I try to help families know that they don't have to overhaul everything at once, but start being mindful, start taking steps towards that life you envision. And it's gonna rub off on your kids if you're living that life. Oh, absolutely. I actually advise and I talk about my books, don't overhaul everything. Don't try to like just go through the pantry and throw all the junk food out. You really do need to phase it in and do a phased approach. And I recommend people start with breakfast. Just take one meal, pick breakfast and say, okay, what can we do to alter our breakfast so that it's healthier? And so if, you know, that means coming up with a couple of different options and just really just focus in on a small piece at a time and just chip away at it. And you'll find that it's going to get easier. And if you take it in baby steps, that that's going to make the process a lot easier. Beautiful. I love that. Well, tell us what personal habit you're most proud of and why. Oh, that's a, uh, that's a tough question. Um, well, I think that I'm most proud of the fact that I make an effort every day to get some sort of exercise. Now, you know, some days it's harder than others. I live in the Northeast, so sometimes we have, you know, two feet of snow on the ground. But I think that it's just important to make sure that you're moving, especially, you know, nowadays where we're on the computer a lot and people are so sedentary. It's so important to make sure that you're getting out there and getting outside. And even if you go for a walk or take the dog for a walk, that counts, that counts as exercise. And so just trying to do little bits of movement where I can, um, you know, I think is something that I'm proud of. And I think it's gonna help me as I grow older to hopefully, you know, retain muscle mass and to be able to, um, you know, keep my body moving. And I think that that's something that we really need to think about moving forward, especially among our kids. And I noticed that, you know, children are different now than they were when I was a child. I mean, there's so much more technology, so much more of being a kid involves being on a screen or a device than it did. And I really think we kind of have to get back to the old ways and, you know, have the kids go outside, go to the park, play, come up with some running games just so that we can make sure that we're keeping that exercise piece of the equation going because nutrition is so important, but if we don't have the exercise to go along with it and, you know, that's going to not really be the goal. We need to stay healthy and it's not just nutrition, but it's also exercise, reducing stress. I kind of look at them as like sort of like a three-legged stool. If you only have one leg of the stool, the stool's not going to work. You really need to have the other parts there as well. Yes, they go hand in hand. Absolutely. And I agree. I It's been a radical change, I think. And I wasn't one of the kids that was outside all the time. My mom was though. Her generation, she talks about being gone all day from the house, yeah. all day. Like she wouldn't come back until the sun went down. And if it was a full moon, she stayed out even later. But my kids, they barely do that. You know, we have to force them outside. And yesterday I had a patient who had a shirt on as a little, a little preschooler. 
his shirt actually said, go outside and play. And I thought to myself, that's almost like an old fashioned saying now because right. we don't say that to our kids. We need to start saying that more. Go, yeah. go outside, get off that device, go outside, don't come back until dinner. You know? Right. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I think, you know, as a parent too, I have a 12 year old and a five year old, both girls. And I think that, I, I don't know why, maybe parents of our generation seem to feel like they have to, you know, lead their children into what they're going to do. And so we've kind of removed a bit of the creativity by structuring our child's lives so much. Yes. And so, by just saying to your kid, go outside and do something. I don't do whatever you want. I don't know. Like you just go outside and figure it out on your own. I feel like that's tough for us as parents now because we're so used to kind of micromanaging our kids' lives to some extent. And so to tell them to just go outside, I, I think often too, children are like, look to their parents to say, and do what? What am I going to do out there? You know, whereas when I was younger, I remember my mom saying, go outside and play. And I don't think she ever once came outside with us to tell us what game to do or to set something up. Like we just went out and played and figured it out. We had acorn fights and we picked sticks. I don't know. We, we just found stuff to do, played games. Um, but I think we need to get our kids back to that. Cause I feel like, yes. you know, that was a fun part of childhood that I feel like they're not experiencing that I think could be beneficial to their creativity later in life. Exactly. It's so good for them, but it's also good for us because I think as parents, we have this increased burden of thinking we need to entertain our kids all the time, mm -hmm. keep them comfortable all the time. We're yes. in this bubble of comfort, total comfort. Right. So I think we need to push them outside. I'm going to, I'm going to try to do that this week and see what happens. Yes. <laughs> my, my little one. So mine are 11 and 16 and my okay. little one be like, I'm bored. There's nothing to do, you know? Right. So it's like that. Stop whining and just go figure it out. You can do right. it. <laughs> right. I believe exactly. in you. Yes. Dr. Avina, this has been so great. I know that my listeners are going to want to connect with you, find out more about your books and your research and how they can support you. So please let us know where we can connect with you and find all your goodies. Oh yeah, absolutely. So if you go to my website, Dr. NicoleAvina.com. You'll see there's links to all of research articles, um, stories about our lab and different things like that. Lots of information about health and wellness and nutrition. And also if you want to follow me on social media at uh, Dr. Nicole Avina, I often post, you know, information about different things that are happening in the nutrition world and lots of tips and, you know, recipes and yummy stuff like that. Awesome. Very nice. Well, if you can leave us with one call to action for the week, what is one thing that we can do this week to increase the variety of fruits and vegetables that our kids eat? Oh, well, I think that one thing that you can do is to take your child to the grocery store and ask them to pick out three vegetables or three fruits or a combination and we're going to make a recipe with them. And it could be a great way to get your kids not only involved with cooking, but make them feel like they have a say in what they're eating. A lot of times I think parents, you know, think, oh, it's kind of a hassle to bring the kids to the grocery store. I'll go while they're at school. So, you know, it's just it'd be quicker that way. But I think it's important to take kids grocery shopping so that they can feel like they have some say in the family's meals and they get to pick. And, you know, just like anybody, when you feel like it was your idea, then you think it's a great idea, right? So I think that, you know, letting your kid pick out some fresh fruits and vegetables and try out some different ones and maybe make a fun recipe is a great way to do it. I love it. That is such a great tip and a wonderful call to action. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate hearing all of your knowledge and wisdom and experience. And I'm so grateful that you do the research and the work that you do. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Thank you so much. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.